Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Boy, it's good to have you here and excited to be here to be able to, to share with you as we, we really do celebrate the reason uh, that we have the season, right? And it's been good to worship together. And uh, here we are in the middle of a sermon series called Fulfilled, as you've seen in the video there. And it's not so much about us being fulfilled, although that is, is certainly part of it, but uh, it's instead about Christ and looking, about all, looking at all those things that he fulfilled on that very first uh, Christmas. And uh, last week, Pastor Jonathan uh, shared from the book of Isaiah chapter 9, and today we'll be unwrapping another Christmas passage a few chapters before that in Isaiah chapter 7, and you can feel free to turn there if you'd like uh, this morning. But uh, this is the time of year that we hear about the baby, right? This is when we hear about the Christmas baby. And uh, if you've ever been around the birth of a baby before, and I'm assuming in one way or another you all have, or in one form or another you all have, you're probably familiar with those words, it's time, it's time. It's exciting to hear the news that a baby is on the way. And I remember the, a time when my wife was seven months pregnant and she was going to a routine doctor's appointment. And while she was gone, I was giving my two oldest kids a bath. And they were making so much noise in the bathtub that I didn't hear the phone ringing my wife was desperately trying to get a hold of me. And so she ended up calling one of the ladies in the church who ended up coming to my house, drove to our house, burst through the door and said, it's time. Your wife's having a baby two months early. It's time. Those are exciting words and scary words, right? all wrapped up into one. I remember uh, hearing the story a few years ago while Hurricane Irma was bearing down on the residents of Florida that a lady in Miami went into labor and she was all alone in her house. And so the woman ended up giving birth at home while the Miami Fire Department coached her over the phone. And people thought it was ironic when they found out that the lady's name was Storm. Which, think about this, and I thought, you know, storms arrive when storms arrive, and babies arrive when babies arrive. But I'm also reminded at the same time that there was a baby, one baby, that came exactly when God wanted him to come. In fact, God was planning this birth in eternity past. That's how amazing it was. And here in the book of Isaiah, we read about this special birth over 600 years before it happened. We read about this verse at Christmas time in chapter, well, verse 14 of chapter 7 in the book of Isaiah. We read this familiar verse. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and she'll call his name Emmanuel. 
And uh, this morning, at the risk of, of confusing us all, I wanted to first consider something about this verse because I ran into this, in, into this quotation not long ago, and that was this. It states, a single verse that is not on the topic can never be clear about a topic that it's not about. What does that mean? You see, we shouldn't look at a single verse without also looking at the circumstances behind that verse. Otherwise, we might think it says something that it doesn't say, and we might try to prove something that that verse does not prove. So we have to ask, what are the circumstances that surround this verse that's so familiar to us at this time of year. And we also recognize that there's added importance to this verse because we remember this is the verse that the angel spoke to Joseph when he appeared before him. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18, we read these words. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So here we have this verse in Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There are four words that our best stories start with, right? Once upon a time. But those aren't the words of this story, because this story is, is not a fairy tale. In fact, the best part about this story is that it is 100% truth. That's why it says these words, this is the, Jesus Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus took, took place in, in this way. And we may wonder, why are we even told this story about the details of, of Jesus' birth? And why is it described for us in the detail that it's described for us? And one of the things we wrote in your notes at the top there is, the birth of Jesus is central to explaining his identity, his message, and his mission. The birth of Jesus is central to explaining his identity, his message, and his mission and uh, we realize that this Christmas season, we don't want to miss the birth of Jesus in the midst of all the celebration and all the festivities and all that goes on around this time of year. One thing we don't want to miss is the birth of Jesus because there is so much there that's so compelling. And so long before he was born, there was this promise that was given to this newly commissioned prophet named Isaiah, and we want to take a look at this promise of this prophet, because Isaiah himself was one who was sent to the people of God, and his message was one of judgment to the people of God. Judgment was coming on God's people. 
he was different than many of the other prophets of the 7th and 8th century because he was someone who was cultured. He was sophisticated, unlike many of the other prophets of his time who came from the rural area and they were poor. Isaiah had a lot of money and we had, we're told that he had some political connections. In fact, if we were to compare him to someone of today, he would likely have been an ambassador because of the international connections he had and the political connections that he had. And so we find out that Isaiah was commissioned in the year 740 B.C., which was, by the way, the same year that the city of Rome was founded. And so it's interesting at this time that God had called the prophet to pronounce judgment on his people in a different place. He was beginning what would become the start of the Roman Empire, which several centuries later would be a power that would sweep into the land of Palestine and be there and be present when the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So is God working out his plan with his people? Is God working out his plan with his people? He is, isn't he? And we see this this working out as this is going on. And so, as we learned this last week, Jesus' story is told even in the first chapters of the Old Testament when it tells us about the seed of the woman. And uh, the careful reader will realize that really the entire Bible, the entire Bible is about Jesus. You see in the Old Testament this message that he's coming. He's coming. We see in the message of the Gospels that he's here. The book of Acts proclaims him. The epistles explain him. And the book of Revelation says he's coming again. The entire Bible in a nutshell. And it's all about Jesus. And so in the Old Testament book of Isaiah we see this repeated reference to this person that's coming. It says, he's coming, he's coming. Be ready. And especially in the book of Isaiah, we see this figure emerge, this fascinating figure emerge from its pages, and it gives us details, and we get a glimpse of this one who was to come. And so if you were a Jew living in the first century, you would know every word of the book of Isaiah and you would be excited. You'd be living in anticipation of this one who would be coming that is promised. This one from of old. And that's why we look in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. As he starts his public ministry, he steps onto the scene and he connects himself with the words of Isaiah and his writings. Because we remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus walked into the synagogue of Nazareth, his hometown. And as a visiting rabbi that day, he was handed a scroll. And can you guess what the passage to be read that Sunday was, or whatever day that was? It was Isaiah 61. And so Jesus unrolls the scroll... And he begins to read, and he says these words. 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he kept on reading and he sat down. And everyone was waiting for an explanation as the visiting rabbi, what would Jesus say about this? And he gave the shortest sermon in the history of sermons. As he sat down, he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is he saying? Seeing I'm the one. I'm the one that Isaiah has been talking about. I'm the anointed one. I'm, I'm the Messiah. And I've arrived on the scene. And that, that's one of the last things we see written about the Messiah from the, the book of Isaiah. But one of the first things that we see written about the Messiah is this passage, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall, shall conceive and, and bear a son. One of the first things we see in this prophecy about Jesus being born of a virgin was, was given in the middle of a national crisis. And if I could just take a few moments and tell you what was going on at the nation of Israel at this time, because quite frankly, you could read through chapter 7 and not have any idea what's going on if you don't understand some of the history that's going on at this time. They were in the middle of a national crisis. And there was a time after King Solomon that the Jewish nation split in two and there was the northern kingdom called Israel and there was the southern kingdom called Judah and ten of the tribes went to go with the northern kingdom and two of the tribes went to go with the southern kingdom called Judah and the other tribe that joined them was Benjamin because Benjamin was such a small tribe that, that uh, kingdom took on the name of, of Judah. And it's important to recognize that the royal line of David continued through the nation or the, north, the southern kingdom of Judah that was going on at this time. And sometimes the northern kingdom would not be living in harmony with the southern kingdom, even though they had a similar background and were a similar people and were, were Jews of that time. And we find ourselves in the middle of one of those times of disharmony between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And we see that they were in crisis. And in your notes, first of all, because of a godless leader. And uh, we're introduced to this person. Take a few minutes to look at me at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah... Razan, the king of Syria, and uh, Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Isaiah 7, verse 1. And so here we meet the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, King Ahaz. And nearly all the kings of the northern kingdom were evil kings, bad kings bad leaders, but the southern kingdom of Judah had some kings that were good and some kings that were bad or evil. And so we look at these kings and we look at Uzziah, king of Judah, good king. He was the one that Isaiah was commissioned in the year of his death in Isaiah chapter 6. And then we get to his son, Jotham, good king. 
followed the Lord as best he could. And then he had a son, Ahaz, bad king. So we meet Ahaz, who came into power likely in his 20s, and he's facing this national crisis, and uh, he thought the ways of his father and his grandfather were kind of old school, and he thought he would usher in maybe a brand new bright era for his people. Uh, But he had no allegiance to the one true God. So when trouble came knocking on Ahaz's door, he didn't have the spiritual resources upon which to stand because in easier times, he had not cultivated a trust in God who could help him in times of testing. And so in his time of testing, he didn't have the faith on which to stand. And his failure was at that time impacting the whole nation. And so the summary statement of his life in 2 Kings 16 verse 2 sums it up like this. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So they're in crisis because of their leader, but they're also in crisis number two because of a serious threat that is going on at this time. As we can see from verse 1, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel joined forces with a nearby king, Syria, and he was getting ready to attack Ahab and his people of the southern kingdom. And the reason that they were attacking Ahaz was because he did not join in an alliance against them, against a larger enemy that they had, which was the Assyrian army. Not Syria, but Assyrian army. And so they were going to go and conquer um, the southern kingdom of Judah and um, defend themselves against this Assyrian army, which had this reputation. They were legendary for going in and gobbling up city after city after city. And so we're told at this time that there were a quarter of a million people that had already been depopulated out of Judah and brought up to the northern kingdom. So you can see in verse 2, the heart of Ahaz and his people, it says, shook like the forest shakes before the wind. You can imagine what's going on. He is panic-stricken at this point because they're at the, 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 the brink of an imminent invasion to their north. And so they're in the middle of a crisis because of a godless king, a serious threat, and number three, because of a foolish solution. Ahaz is getting nervous, so he has this idea, and he comes up with this idea And he's going to develop an alliance that's separate from Syria and Israel, except one problem. His alliance won't be against Syria. His alliance will be with Assyria. And so uh, he's thinking uh, Syria and Israel are are, are going to uh, overtake us. I'll be removed. I'll be put in prison. I'll probably be killed. So if I can buy Assyrians good favor... And if I submit to them, when they invade us, hopefully they'll let myself live and hopefully they'll let the land of Judah still exist in some shape or form as it always has. And so this sounded like a good idea. But I have to tell you, this was not a good idea, first of all, because it wasn't sanctioned by God. But secondly, this wasn't a good idea 
Um, because as, as someone has uh, said it before, this, is a good, this sounds like a good idea on paper, but this is rather like a mouse currying the favor of a cat to help him win a fight against two rats. In the end, he still gets eaten alive. So I don't know if you followed any of that, and if you had a little snooze, that's fine, but I just want you to know the southern kingdom of Judah was in trouble, and into this national crisis steps Isaiah. The prophet sent sent by God in the middle of this national crisis, and the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, you and your son, verse 4, and say to him, be quiet, be careful, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. God calls them smoldering stumps because their life is about to end. And he says about their plans that they've devised against you, verse 7, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. And so God is telling Isaiah, you don't need to be afraid, you don't need to fear. He's telling Ahaz, because um, you can trust in me. And he reminds him in verse 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And so God's saying, you can do this, Ahaz. Guess what? God is on your side. I've got a plan and I've got a purpose. You can do this, Ahaz. And what's the, what's the plan? The plan is this. God will not let the line of David, the royal line of David, be destroyed because that's the line that the Messiah is going to come from. So God will not let that line be destroyed, the house of David, as this is going on. So verse 11, the Lord comes before Ahaz and he has this generous offer and he uh, asks a sign, he said, ask the sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And so God wanted to increase the faith of Ahaz. So he says, ask anything. It can be anything. And I will answer. Pick a sign and I'll do it for you. Can you imagine? He could have asked for anything at that time. And God would have done it. But Ahaz hadn't done it God's way his entire life. And so he wasn't going to change course now. And so this is what he said, verse 12. I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And he rejected the generosity of God. And if we could, if we could stop for, for one moment here, and there's something that is that's significant for us here in, in all this. Because this king that we, we rarely talk about, like I, I doubt that you've had any conversations this week about Ahaz. As you guys have been busy paying your bills and been busy running the kids from this place to that place and getting the gifts for Christmas, I bet you haven't even thought of Ahaz. But I have to tell you something. It's because of this evil king and him rejecting a sign from God that you have received a sign from God. 
Because evil King Ahaz rejected a sign from God, we have received a sign from God. And what's the sign? Verse 14, a virgin will conceive. This is a sign. It's a, it's a signal. It's like a beacon that God is sending our way. It's like a monument. And it, it points to this, this deeper truth that all of us can understand. It's the sign of a miraculous birth. Because this baby will not have a physical earthly father because he'll have a heavenly father. And this baby will be called Emmanuel, God with us. This baby will be God in the flesh. That's what incarnation means, in the flesh. And so God became a man, and in so doing, he didn't cease to be who he was, for he was God. And in so doing, he became what he was not. He became a man born of a virgin. That's the sign that we're talking, the Son of God and and God the Son, all wrapped up in one, truly God and truly man, 100% God and 100% man, all wrapped up in one. And we have to say, how can we even comprehend that? Did you ever stop to think about that? How do we understand this incredible miracle, this birth, And the answer is we cannot understand it. And that's why we sing these carols that we do every year and we keep singing them because we don't understand it. But there's something amazing. There's something marvelous here for us beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding. There's a mystery here and we keep singing and singing about it. To stop and think about just some of the words of all these carols. I mean, lo, within... The manger lies. He who built the starry skies. Wow. Can we comprehend that? Who is that in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? It is Jesus, King of glory. Crown him, crown him, Lord of glory. At his feet we humbly bow. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. Right? Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Mary, did you know that the babe you're holding will one day walk on water? We could go on and on and keep singing all these amazing truths about this miraculous birth. And this is the sign that's mentioned in Isaiah, this miraculous birth. But there's something you need to know about this sign because it will transform you in one of two directions. When we think about this sign that was given to the prophet Isaiah, mark this. If you accept this sign, you put yourself on the road to embrace belief in everything about Jesus. If you accept this sign, you, you put yourself on a road to embrace everything about Jesus. But if you reject this sign, you put yourself on a road to embrace 
unbelief in everything about Jesus. Does it really make a difference, do you think, to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? It's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between life and death. For two reasons, really, because first, if Jesus had been born with a human father, he would have had a sin nature, and he would have never been able to redeem us. Without the deity of Christ, Christianity crumbles. Because Christianity is a person. It's Jesus reconciling himself to the world. Christianity is is not a cause. It's, it's not a commandment. It's not a creed. It's a person. And this person's identity is central. And it's wrapped up to him being able to save sinners. So the virgin birth makes all the difference about Jesus Christ. But also the virgin birth and the, the miracle of it makes all the difference for, for you this morning as we think about this. How do you respond to the virgin birth? You know, someone once said it like this. Try to explain it and you will lose your mind. Try to explain it away and you will lose your soul. That's how important this is. One of the defenders of the faith of the early 20th century was a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen, and he was a professor at Princeton University. And while many around him were denying the Bible and the authenticity and the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible, he was defending it. And one of his great works that he put together, one of his monumental works, was on the virgin birth. And in his work, he said this Certain it is that men who reject the virgin birth scarcely ever hold to a really Christian view of Christ. In the overwhelming majority of cases, those who reject the virgin birth reject the whole supernatural view of Christ. That's how important this is. And I think how much better is it for us to marvel of how God entered the world? To be amazed at how God entered the world. First Timothy uh, 3.16 says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. That's the, that's the glory that's the mystery of the virgin birth. That's the mystery of the incarnation. And we can sit back and glory in what Jesus has done. Who else has affected history more than Jesus Christ? I mean, more books have been written about Jesus than any other person. More paintings have been painted than any other person. More music has been composed about Jesus than any other person. And we realize he's the one that, by his birth, has divided history. 
And so we realize, we glory in who he is and what he's done. I love the statement of Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And if you want to take just a minute to, to turn there with me, this statement of Galatians 4 really in, encapsulates the, the mission of Christ and, and in, encapsulates his, his message and his mission. And this is why Christ came to earth as, as prophesied by Isaiah because we have part one, this promise that was given in the middle of a national crisis and then coming out of that we have this fulfillment, Galatians 4 that came under extraordinary circumstances. And it says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And we look at this passage and we realize Number one, that Jesus became man at the right time. At exactly the right time, right? It's time. It wasn't a moment too soon or a moment too late. And as God was planning to offer salvation to the world from the beginning, all the different elements of God's plan was coming together and being fulfilled just as they were supposed to be. And we don't, we don't have time to name them all this morning, but we could go on and on. The Romans just happened to be occupying Palestine and just so happened to issue a decree that the world should be taxed, which just so happened to send a man named Joseph to Bethlehem where the Messiah would be born, who just so happened to be a descendant of David, who just so happened to also be engaged to Mary, who accompanied on the, him on that trip, who just also so happened to be a descendant of David, who just so happened to be a virgin with child who all just so happened to be nestled, living in, in between three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, which because of the Roman Empire, just so happened to have a magnificent system of roadways, which would provide a way to proclaim a message of salvation to the world, if there just so happened to be something like the good news of the gospel... We're in this region also, there just so happened to be the common language of Greek because of Alexander the Great, who had ruled previously, that just so happened to bring together a multitude of people of different racial backgrounds and different nations under one language, which just so happened to allow a way to share that message across all these ethnic divisions, which just so happened to be the ideal language to write the New Testament in, which just so happened to be a message for all mankind. Which at the time, the Romans just so happened to have a form of crucifixion, or execution called crucifixion, which just so happened to be what the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament describes as the way the Messiah would give his life for his people. At just the right time. Just the right time. And when there are there are so many just-so-happens that just all pile up together. We realize this didn't just so happen, did it? God was working out his plan. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. Number two, Jesus became a man to be born of a woman. 
not born of man, but born of a woman. He was human, but because of his virgin birth, he possessed a sinless nature, and yet he was God. And we're told, number three, he became a man to be born under the law. So Jesus was born under the law as any Jew, and so as a Jew living under the law, he was fully obligated to obey every aspect of the law, and as Jesus lived, he fulfilled every aspect of the law. Living a perfect life, born under the law, he was perfect under the law, unlike any other Jew, unlike us, who break the law, and he is willing to give us his righteousness that we would have a perfect standing before God. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He became a man, number four, as a rescue mission from God. And I love this. God sent forth. God sent forth his son. Do you guys see what's, what's going on here? Because someone from the outside had to save those on the inside. Someone from the outside had to save those on the inside because there was no way for those on the inside to save themselves. And so God orchestrated this plan from eternity past. He would pass through the birth canal of a woman in a created world that he himself had created. But we know that every fiber of human pride resists the idea that we need someone from the outside to save us. We don't need someone from the outside to save us. We can save ourselves. But Jesus became a man to assure us that we are not God. It's spirituality that looks internally for answers. Spirituality looks internally for answers, but Christianity looks externally for answers. God sent forth his son. But I think we both know, we live in this culture, don't we, that likes to look inside ourselves. And the mantra of our day is, I found someone that I never want to lose again, and that person is me. The, uh, the actor uh, John Wayne said it like this. He said, I like God until he gets under a roof. What's he saying? Right? He's saying, I, I, want my, I want my belief to be just between God and me. I, I want it to be internal. I don't want to be confined by doctrine or higher authority and structure and definitions and teaching, I just want it to be between God and me. And how much is, is that our, our mindset today as we 
go through life and we look at our culture, it's just me and God. And when we boil everything down, my God is me. Many seekers never find God because they're looking for someone who agrees with them, not someone who overrides their opinions. And that's why God said in Galatians 4.4, he had to send forth his son. Someone from the outside had to interrupt and invade our world. It had to be a rescue mission from outside because we were so stuck on saving ourselves. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was one of the, he was a Unitarian Universalist and the father of what we could call the modern New Age movement, he said this, the height the deity of man is to be self-sustained, to need no gift, no foreign force, no external God. And that's how we think today. We might, we might deny it in, intellectually, but I mean, self-reliance and, and inner experience, that, that's how we understand ourselves today, and that's the culture that we live in because like a fish in water doesn't even understand what water is. I mean, as we look around us, that's the way people think and that's how we adopt our thinking to so many times. Human nature wants to have a spiritual experience, but they, they don't want an outer authority that tells them what to do. And God sent forth his son to invade our world It's great to have God as, as my life coach, right? To, to give me advice. That, that's spirituality. But I, I don't want him to be my judge. But that's, that's Christianity. And so we understand when God sent his son, he sent him as judge, jury, and executioner. All at once. And we were those who were, were under the law, and the law confirmed us guilty. And so, when you understand God as judge, jury, and executioner, then you're ready to understand God as Savior. You're, you're ready to understand Jesus sent from God and so, number five, Jesus became a man, and this is the good news. Jesus became a man to redeem those under the law, right? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And that's the good news. That, that's the gift. That's the gift of Christmas this year. A Savior has been born it's Christ the Lord. He wants to redeem us. He wants to save us. This is the good news of Jesus. And that means opening up this gift that God has given to us. Receiving this gift, the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. It's not just something we talk about and think about from time to time. He's the gift. 
we receive him into our, our lives, and, and he's real to us. It's not just something we agree to intellectually. He's real to us every moment of every day. God sent forth his son. You've heard about the, the little boy, and there was a storm coming through, and he was afraid of, of the thunder and, and the lightning, and so he yelled out into the darkness, into the next room where his, his parents were, and uh, he yelled out, Mom, Mommy, Daddy, I'm, I'm scared. Come in here. His dad wanted to comfort him, but he also wanted him to be courageous, so he yelled back, No, son, stay there. You're fine. More thunder. Mom, Dad, come help me. Dad yells back, no son, just grab a little tighter onto that teddy bear and hold your pillow real tight. There was silence. And then more thunder. And then things got real quiet. And the little boy shouted out of the darkness, Daddy, I need something with skin on it. We can understand what he was saying, can't we? Jesus is God with skin on him. That's the miracle of the incarnation. God incarnate, truly human, truly God, wrapped up in one. That's, that's the miracle of Christmas. And this morning, for our application this morning, I don't have four easy steps for you. I don't have three steps on how to survive Christmas or anything like that. I just have two words for you this morning to think about as we think about this text that was before us, that we've looked at this morning. Worship and believe. Worship and believe God incarnate. Worship the baby in the manger and all that goes into that. Believe that he is everything that the scriptures say he is. Because that is truly amazing when we think about Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the truth this Christmas of God with us. It was, it was so long ago that you gave up the glories of heaven to become a man. And we cannot even fathom at all, even for one second, what that all means. But we welcome it in our hearts this morning, Father. And we don't just want to talk about it, but we, we want to celebrate it. We want to worship you for, for what you've done. Because great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. You were manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So this morning, 
not only do we worship you, but, but we believe. We look to you, not, not ourselves, but we look to you, our hope this Christmas, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray.